Well, we've already considered a bit this morning how God has spoken to us in his creation, in his general revelation, and now we look at his special revelation to us as it is given in his word. And in the next few weeks, we are going to be focusing on the word and that word of truth as it speaks to us in our individual context and in our culture. And uh, we're going to be focusing primarily on Psalm 119, which is really uh, committed to the truth of God's word. But we're going to introduce that first by going back uh, 100 psalms to uh, Psalm 19, and we'll uh, introduce it with a section from Psalm 19, and then uh, move over to sections from Psalm 119. So let's look at these words of God together. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and, like a strong man, runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. Your righteousness is righteous forever, and your law is true. But you are near, are near O Lord, and all your commandments are true. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. 
The word of the Lord. Please join me in prayer. Lord, we do so much give you thanks for your revelation to us and the world that you've created and the ways you have spoken to us there. We thank you for your word and the truth that it declares and what it tells us about who you are, about who we are, and about, about what our relationship to you can be like. And Lord, we know that you also speak to us through your servants. And as Addison is going to come now and uh, expound on that word, we pray that your spirit would attend him, that his words would be clear, that our hearts would be receptive, and that we may go forth from this place with a real commitment to knowing your word and to living it out wherever you have placed us. We ask this in your name. Amen. Please be seated. I love new things. I love the allure of a new thing. I love uh, new ideas and new projects. Just ask my wife uh, how much she can attest to these things. I am always talking about the next thing that I want or the next thing that I want to do. I've got our whole backyard planned out in lots of spring glory and projects. And I try and bring my family along, though five and three-year-old don't really do a lot of help with yard projects, so those new projects are all for me. But I love new things. I can't state that enough. It's a blessing and a curse. I, I recognize that there is certainly the downside of that that is easy to see and just not being content and wanting to, to move uh, past um, into new things. But today we start a new sermon series. I love new things. It gives us a new, fresh perspective on God's word. We get to go from looking at John and the I am statements now to look at Psalm 119 and to look at who God is through this portion of the Bible. And then we move on to something else and look at God through a different portion of the Bible. The Bible is such a beautiful uh, array of who God is from various angles. And so, like Bob said, we're going to look at Psalm 119 over the course of the coming months. We're going to take uh, seven weeks to, to really dive into this psalm and, and gain a better sense of who is God. And what do we do with his word? It's a beautiful and rich psalm. 200, 200, 2,000 and 362 words in this psalm. It's longer than some uh, uh, other books of the Bible in the New Testament. It's certainly the longest chapter in the Bible. It's the longest psalm. These are all things that you probably know. It's 176 verses. And so it needs more than just a particular sermon to really delve into the richness of what the psalmist has. Psalm 19 is a great setup for us because uh, like its compatriot in number, Psalm 19 is uh, about the beauty of God's word. And that is exactly what Psalm 119 is about. Let's 
If you have a Bible, I'm just going to give you a recommendation for this sermon series. It's probably good for any sermon series when you come to church. Just bring your Bible. So if you have a Bible on your phone, on your iPad, you want to bring a, a paperback Bible. This is what they look like now, if you don't remember, uh, with all the digital things. Bring those, and because it'll be helpful. Because with 176 verses, you know, we are going to be jumping around. And, of course, we have some in the bulletin. We can't put them all there. Uh, the bulletin would be super long. So bring a Bible. We'll be jumping around in different places. So Psalm 119, let me just read you the first, um, the first part of this psalm. It says, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong. But walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. Get a real taste of what Psalm 119 is like through that first stanza. Of course, this is an acrostic poem. This is poetry uh, that we have here. There, uh, acrostic meaning it goes through every letter of the Hebrew Bible. So every time, thankfully, in your Bibles, it points that out for you. That was Aleph. And then we go on to Beit and Gimel and so on and so forth through the whole Hebrew alphabet. We lose a little bit of the poetry in our English translation, but nonetheless, you still get a sense that this person, the psalmist, really loves God's word. I mean, just in those first eight verses, we get a number of words that highlight this. He says that he, he walks in the law of the Lord, or his testimonies, uh, that he walks in his ways, precepts, statutes, commandments, righteous rules. They're all over the place. Almost a fourth of this psalm is talking about the psalmist's relationship to God through his word. And so that's what we're going to do over seven weeks. We're going to look at this relationship that is offered through Psalm 119. This isn't just good for you and I in our, in our gathering here, but this really meets our cultural moment. If we look around us, people are searching for the good life. We've talked about that before. They're looking for community and purpose and meaning and ritual. They're looking to find that connectedness, something that's bigger than them, something that brings them together. They're so fragmented. If you look all over, people are setting their allegiances with different people, our parties, with different belief systems, maybe with different groups different ways of living, and they're all in tension with one another. They're combatant. They don't see eye to eye. But here the psalmist gives us a different way. The culture seems lost, but the psalmist is not lost. So what and how can he say that this word is sweeter than honey. You thought about that? It's both in Psalm 19 and 119. I mean, I just listed to you all the different ways it talks about God's word. And if you're like me, you hear those things, laws, statutes, testimonies, God's way. They're not really appealing at times. They kind of rub against our modern sensibilities. My individual sense of who I am, I want to find my meaning by myself. 
through who I am, through the way that I approach the world, what I believe. But the psalmist says that by following God through his word, his word that is sweeter than honey. I just had honey on a bagel this morning, and it was sweet. But this is sweeter than that. If you're like me, you see that there are obstacles to the Bible. In fact, what is this Bible? What is it? How do we approach it? What do we do with it? What does it mean for us in our life? And today, we're going to walk through this sermon, which is uh, this text. Is what we're going to do is a setup for the rest of the seven weeks. It's going to be a bit different. Um, it's more topositional than it is expositional, meaning that it's more on a topic, and I'm going to pull thoughts out from the text as opposed to going verse by verse. That's kind of what we're going to do throughout this sermon series, look at these different topics that we find in Psalm 119. Seek to answer, how can God's word be sweeter than honey? One of my seminary professors, he is a scholar. Uh, he still is a scholar in the book of Leviticus, which how many of you, that's your favorite book of the Bible? Right? Not very many hands. But he is just, I mean, he's like a kid in a candy store when he talks about Leviticus. It is just the best book that you could ever read in the Bible. He says one of the reasons that he loves the book of Leviticus is because when you know the law, you get the heart of the lawgiver. The law gives you the heart of the lawgiver. And in Leviticus, that's exactly what we get. We're getting law. That's why it's so hard for most of us to read. It's so distant. It just feels like it's so different than how we live in the culture that we are a part of, which is true. But we get God's heart. And so today, that's what we're talking about, the heart of God. In God's word, we find the heart of God. But there are obstacles. Came across a statistic recently that said that 32% of evangelical Christians read their Bibles on a daily basis. Don't worry. Reformed evangelicals fared slightly better at 36%. But why is that? Why is it that such a short and small number, a third of evangelicals, read their Bible daily? If it's sweeter than honey, how come we are not engaging with it on a daily basis? Well, I think that there are obstacles. There are obstacles certainly that exist for Christians, but I think there certainly are obstacles that exist for non-Christians. I mean, we've seen this atheism, people like Richard Dawkins, even people within our own practice who have left, Bart Ehrman, other folks that have come out against the Bible, and they present obstacles. I have encountered many of these. You probably have encountered them as well. Non-Christians have many obstacles to the Bible. I'm just going to name two uh, just for our time here. I mean, we could have a whole series, an adult institute class, on the different obstacles that non-Christians have to the Bible. But here are just two that I've heard in conversations over the years. And the first one is that the Bible is unreliable. That it's a document, it's old, it's uh, we've gone through much history since then. Our culture has changed. Society is different. We have modern science now, which offers us better answers to the world that we live in than the Bible does. And it's offensive. It's offensive to read the Bible. It challenges me in ways that are not great, and I don't love that, and so it's just unreliable. Can't rely on what it is. It's not even historically accurate. I don't know if you've heard arguments like this before, but this is a common one. 
that I come across. I'll just give you a quick um, brief response. During the first service, my brief response turned into a long response. So if it gets too long, just someone raise their hand. Brief response. So it's unreliable. I, I, you know, I would say that there are a couple of things here that we can press into. First is that the way that the Bible was put together precludes it from being unreliable. What do I mean by that? Well, it, let's just take the Gospels in the New Testament here for a second. So the Gospels were put together, and they are testimonies of an historical event, a historical life of Jesus. So these are eyewitness accounts. These are people who knew Jesus. The Gospels were written just a mere 60 years from when Jesus had died, and the New Testament letters, which give testimony to the Gospels, were written 20 to 30 years after that. So if you were going to write something that you wanted to make up as a legendary, if you will, you would have waited many more years after that. Because there are people that you can go to that can tell you eyewitness accounts. I mean, that is what law enforcement, that's what detectives look for. They look for eyewitness accounts. So that's one thing that we can consider. And the offensiveness, to, when you read the Bible, it is offensive. There are things in it that strike against the way that we live in our own culture. It's true for you and I. It's true for everyone across the world. Let's just take one example of something that's offensive in the Bible to you and I in our culture, and that's a sexual ethic. If you look at our culture, it espouses a very broad sexual ethic, certainly not one that you would find in the Bible. They would say that it is uh, intolerant and unloving that Sex can only be between a man and a woman in marriage, right? All of us have heard these things. That's offensive to our culture. But in the Middle East, that is a common sense belief. In the Middle East, people know and believe that this is true. This is how their society is woven. Of course, this is common sense to them. But there are other things that are offensive to them that are common sense to us. So the mere fact that it's offensive doesn't mean that it's unreliable. It means that it's reliable. It's not tied to one culture. It's a-cultural. It's not tied to one society. As much as Western Christianity wants to, to root itself in as the culture of Christianity, it's not tied to us. It's not tied to any one culture or time. It will last far beyond you and I. The other objective I hear from a lot of non-Christians, this is the one that I hear often, actually from one of my neighbors, is that they would be a Christian if it weren't for Christians. Because the followers of Jesus are hypocritical. They say one thing and live a different way, or they live a certain way and say something else. That they're intolerant, unloving. In fact, they see other non-Christians that are more loving than the Christians that they see in their life. And this is something I hear time and time again. And of course, if you pay attention to the media, you could see how that might be true. Christians are hypocritical. There's just another brief response. This one I think is a bit quicker. The fact that Christians are hypocritical is not a call for less of the Bible and less of God, but for a deeper Christianity, a deeper knowledge of the Bible. And there's two great examples in the scriptures of why this is true. The end of the Bible the Bible doesn't speak highly of its elected officials sometimes. Let's just take the priests in the Old Testament. So the priests are the go-between between God's people and God. 
They are presenting the people that God has elected to him. They're the ones offering sacrifices on their behalf. They're the ones that are praying for and interceding for the people. And they're also representing God to the people. So, of course, naturally, we would think with such an esteemed position that the Bible would speak very highly of them, right? No. In Exodus, when Moses is called to go before Pharaoh, God wants him to fulfill this role. He's calling him to be his priest and to go between Pharaoh and God's people on behalf of God. And what does Moses do? He says, I won't do it. So I said, okay, I'll call Aaron, your brother. He'll do it. Aaron will do it for me. He'll be the priest that I want him to be. So he gives Aaron instructions on how to be this person. He says, go and get the elders and then go to Pharaoh. And so Aaron, being the newly elected Levitical priest, does exactly what God asked him to do, which is not true. He doesn't do what God asked him to do. He actually goes to Pharaoh without the elders. So the point being, if you read through the Old Testament and look at the way the Bible talks about the priest, this esteemed and important role, it's not glamorous. But it gives us a critique of ourselves, that we are sinful, we are broken, we do wander from what God wants us to do. We are hypocritical. Jesus pushes up against the religious establishment and the Pharisees in the New Testament because they're hypocritical. So the answer to Jesus' followers being the reason why people won't follow Jesus is that we just need a deeper understanding of what it actually means to follow Jesus. But of course, that is just for non-Christians. And there is a litany of other examples that we could use, and I'm sure that you have heard. But there's also obstacles that exist in our own lives as followers of Jesus to why we don't engage in the Bible. I mean, 32 to 36 percent, a third of us in this room, according to that statistic, read our Bible on a daily basis. So why don't we read it every day? Why don't all of us read it all the time? Well, there's numerous, numerous obstacles. One of them is the know-it-all obstacle. I love the name of this one. Is the fact that maybe we grew up in a Christian household. This is a good thing. We know the Bible really well because we went to a Christian school. We've done devotionals. We know a lot about the Bible. Therefore, I just don't feel the urge to have to read it. I can handle my conversations with people about the Bible pretty well. I don't need to read it again. I have a fairly good understanding of what it is. It's one obstacle. Another obstacle could be that it's tough. It's difficult. There are hard things in the Bible. When you read it, it's going to challenge you to change the way you live your life. It's going to change your heart and your actions, your motivations, the way you approach relationships, your money, people, who you tie your allegiance to. I'm not sure I'm willing to do that. That's another obstacle. It's obscure. We just talked about Leviticus. It's an obscure text. There are things in it that don't make sense of the culture we live in, society we live in today. In one of the Bible devotionals that I listened to, they talk about how in Exodus, which is the second book of the Bible, when you get to the time where they talk about the tabernacles, when 75% of their daily readers stop reading, they don't even get halfway we get to Exodus, and because it gets obscure, because it gets different, because it doesn't talk about the things that you and I engage with on a daily basis, we set it aside. The last one, I think one that's most poignant, it has lots of competition. 
We live in a culture, a society, I like to call it the credit card Amazon Prime culture. We want things like that. Until the pandemic, you get anything on Amazon in two days. So we want instant results from the things we engage in. Don't think that that, does, that hasn't changed the way you engage with your Bible. The Bible takes time. I mean, this is rich. There's so much here. I mean, there's 176 verses just in the psalm that we are looking at over seven weeks. So if you want an instant result from your Bible reading, you're not going to get very far. You're going to stop in Exodus or before that. But yet, if you're like me, we still feel this urge, this importance to reading the Bible. I mean, the psalmist calls it sweeter than honey. Why? How can it be sweeter than honey? I think we begin to tease this out a bit as we think about what is the Bible? What is this book that we talk so highly of? Oh, you'll hear us often say we need to be people of the book. What is it? Well, first of all, it's a story. What you find here is a grand story. What we like to say is the true story. It's a story about God and what he has been doing, is doing, and will do in this world. We all love stories. Love to escape into a good book, to dive into a movie or binge watch a Netflix series. We love story. We're captivated by them. This is the true story. It has every component of a good story. It's got complex characters, those that you want to tie yourself to and those that you don't want to tie yourself to. It has amazing settings. It spans so many different types of places, metropolitan cities and vast landscapes and wildernesses. It has miracles. It has things that you and I always want to see but never get to see. It presents those for us. It has all the components of an amazing story, and it is a true story. I think most of us don't read our Bibles that way. We don't approach our Bible as a story. We approach it in so many different ways. We approach it with shortcuts. This is the way one author talked about this. He says, many of us, instead of taking the longer but more rewarding path of reading the Bible as story, we want a shortcut. It's reminded me when I was reading this of an ad that I saw some number of years ago. It, it was about this thing called an abtronic. Do any of you know what an abtronic is? This is a little belt you could put around your belly, and it would, you know, massage it and make you toned so you would have a six-pack. So you could walk around. You could make a cup of coffee with the abtronic on. You could, you know, go outside and lay out on the beach with your abtronic on. You could play video games with your abtronic on. And it was going to give you a toned body. It was going to give you the result without the work. You didn't have to work out to get it. That's what it was offering. Of course, everybody in the ad looked fantastic. That's what you got. So that's what many of us want. We want a shortcut. We want an abtronic approach to reading our Bible. We want to get the benefits of toned body without doing the work. We want the electronic impulse of contact with God and grace for the way without the effort of exercising our minds by reading the Bible and discerning how it all fits together 
and how we can live it out in our day and our way. So we take shortcuts. We read the Bible for truth anecdotes. We read it to learn about what it means to be a Christian. We read it to defend a specific belief or doctrine that we might hold on to. We read it like a puzzle, trying to piece together all the different things and figure out what the grand meaning of it all is. We read the Bible through shortcuts. Instead of reading it the way it's meant to be read, from Genesis to Revelation, the story of what God is doing. See, when that statistic, 32% of people read their Bibles, evangelicals read their Bible, there is a malnourishment that comes from that. When we don't engage in reading our Bibles, we are spiritually malnourished. Came across a story of a woman, 17-year-old woman, who passed out at work one day because she had a big old swollen tongue. They found out that her diet consisted 100% for years of McDonald's chicken nuggets. She learned the hard way that man does not live off breaded chicken alone. But there's a truth to this, that you need vegetables and fruits and other meats and salads, all sorts of things in your diet to help you have a healthy, well-nourished body. In the same way that we need fruits and vegetables for our diet, we need the Bible, the Word of God, in our life for a well-nourished life. Without it, we are spiritually malnourished. And so we have to engage with this story, but what do we do with it? What do we do with the Bible since it's a story? We listen. We listen to God through his word. I love the way Luther talked about the Bible. He said, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. We listen because God is moving through this text. It's alive. It's not a static thing. It's something that is transforming us as we read it, as we engage in this beautiful story. The psalmist knew this. It was clear to him. If you have your Bible, I'll just show you a couple of verses in Psalm 119 that point to this. Verses 116 and 117. Uphold me according to your promise that I may live. And let me not be put to shame in my hope. Hold me up that I may be safe and have regard for your statutes continually. See, the psalmist knew it's God's word that gives him life, that holds him up. It gives him everything that he needs for this world. And so because the word of God is so important because it's a story. Because we've got to press through those obstacles, we have to listen to God through the story. And here's where we conclude for today. We listen because there are promises that come from the Bible. Two promises in particular, our promised king and our promised relationship. We are promised Jesus as our king through the scriptures. We encounter this relationship. I mean, Jesus was the word made flesh. In Luke 24, Jesus is explaining to two men on the road to Emmaus, 
that all the Old Testament, the prophets and the law, they point to him. He is unveiling that for them. I just would have loved to have been a part of that conversation. He is central to this word. So when we dive into the Bible, we're diving into this relationship with Jesus as our promised king, as the one who comes on behalf of us, that there'll be no more condemnation, as Galatians 3 talks about, because Jesus died on behalf of us. We don't have to live up to this law. Jesus has done that for us. And what has he done? He's torn the veil. He's broken down the relationship between God and man. He's given us this sweet relationship that we get. And this is why the psalmist can say that the Bible is sweeter than honey. When he starts talking about laws and statutes and commandments and God's ways, it's because he is in a living loving relationship with the God of the universe. When he engages in his Bible, he is engaging with the very God who created everything. That is what makes the Bible sweeter than honey. Is that through it, we are in this beautiful relationship with God. Look at verses 33 through 40. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. The psalmist is attesting to the life that he gets from a relationship with God. A life that is sweeter than anything that you can taste. I love the way that an author puts this. He's talking, he's juxtaposing this idea of engaging in the Bible because of the loving relationship that we get as opposed to engaging the Bible because it's authoritative, because it shows us how to be obedient, good Christians. He goes on to say this, without denying the legitimacy of the various terms in the authority speech, those who have a proper relationship to the Bible never need to speak of the Bible as their authority, nor do they speak of their submission to the Bible. They are so in tune with God, like the psalmist, they're so in love with him that the word authority is swallowed up in loving God. Even more, the word submission is engulfed in the disposition of listening to God speak through the Bible and in the practice of doing what God calls us to do. Friends, that is why we're looking at Psalm 119. It's sweeter than honey because it gives us a relationship with God provided by our King Jesus Christ. We are given this relationship that makes life worth everything. It gives us meaning and purpose, community, ritual. It gives us all the things that we long for in life. We delight in this. We delight that we've been given a book that gives us a relationship with the God of the universe. So we're going to delight together over seven weeks and look at how God
Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word and what we get from your word. Not just wonderful things to believe, and there are so many of them. It is an important book, important for us to know, important for us to be in. But far more important than that, it's a vehicle, an avenue for a relationship with you. One that is filled with beauty and awe, filled with proper relationship. Like the psalmist cries out, Lord, we ask you to make your face to shine upon your servant. Teach us your statutes that we might know you, that the law would give us your heart and that we would delight in desire to have this beautiful relationship that the psalmist has with you. Father, be with us as we press into this, hoping to make it true. Would you grant us your love through your word? Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.